Welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, Kate's dad. And I get, um, this is this is such a fun job for me because I get to be excited every week about who we bring on. And this week I am especially excited. This is one of my favorite authors. Uh, she is the author I turn to when I'm looking for laughs. Her name is Jenny Lawson. Her three books, the first one, Let's Pretend This Never Happened. The second book, Furiously Happy. The third book and most recent book, Broken in the Best Possible Way. She is somebody who writes memoirs, sort of. I'm going to put memoirs in in bunny quotes um, because in some ways she is one of the funniest, most wonderful stream of consciousness authors I have ever read. Well, I'll tell the audience something about you that that is very apparent to people who know you. When Kate meets somebody, her first litmus really as to whether she's going to like them is, are they funny? She responds to people who are funny. That's a critical element of anyone when Kate meets them. And when you meet Jenny Lawson in her writing, she is funny. She has what she calls these rambling parentheticals where her mind just goes off in wonderful directions. There's a quote that Kate will actually mention during the interview which I think is really the essence of Jenny Lawson. Her writing, somebody said, can be described as come for the jokes, stay for the inspirational tale of survival in the face of debilitating mental and physical illness, and then there's more jokes. That's really essential in this. She writes about the systemic depression that she has and how that has left her so debilitated in many, many cases, and how writing and being funny has really saved her life. So I think, Kate, we should do something perhaps different in this talk up to the conversation we had with Jenny, which is to quote her because she couldn't, in the course of the conversation, quote herself and do some of these rambling parentheticals, as she calls them. So we talked a lot about depression. We talked about her being funny. But you can't really realize how funny she is until you hear the way she writes. So Maybe with, with some trepidation, we might quote her. There's some wonderful one-liners. Uh, she says, escargot are just pretentious snails who went to college, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's just typical. But the, the rambling parentheticals are really, really, I think, the, the core of her writing. So take a whack at one. One of my favorite one-liners, she takes a whole chapter where she just takes on motivational posters. You know, those godforsaken posters where there's some sort of still life of a lake and it gives you some sort of a pithy thing at the bottom. And hers is, live as if it's the last day of your life, except don't, because that sounds awful. I'd spend all day in tears if someone told me I was going to die at midnight. That's like having fun at gunpoint. Maybe start a little slower. Live as if it's Saturday, even if it's a Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) There's another one I love. We we wish you a Merry Christmas is the most demanding song ever. It starts off all nice. And a second later, you have an angry mob at your door. Scream singing. Now bring us some figgy pudding and bring it right here. We won't go until we get some. So bring it right here. Also, they're rhyming here with here. That's just sloppy. I'm not rewarding unrequested lazy singers who with their aggressive pudding demands. And then the carolers would be like, so bring us some gin and tonic and let's have a beer. And then I'd be like, well, I guess that's more reasonable. Fine. You can come in for one drink. Technically, that would be a good way to get free booze like trick or treat. But for singing alcoholics. Oh, my God. I finally understand caroling. 
uh, <laughs> off she goes in these wonderful directions and she is funny i want to give you one more because sure. she's also she often breaks the fourth wall she clearly feels that the reader is a sympathizer in the same boat with her so i'll read you from her first book this book is a true story about me and my battle with leukemia and spoiler alert in the end i die so you could just read this sentence and then pretend you've read the whole book Unfortunately, there's a secret word somewhere in the book, and if you don't read all of it, you won't find out the secret word, and then the people in your book club will totally know that you stopped reading after this paragraph and will realize that you're a big, fat fake. Okay, fine. The secret word is snossages, the end. Still there? Good. Because the secret word is not really snossages, and I don't even know how to spell leukemia. This is a special test that you can use to see who really read the book. If someone in your book club even mentions snossages or leukemia, then they're a liar. And you should make them leave. And you should probably frisk them as you're throwing them out because maybe they've stolen some of your silverware. Because the real secret word is <laughs> fork. <laughs> which has nothing to do with anything. Which has It's just... she. If I could map out my brain, I mean, I think when I read uh, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, when I finished, I was like, sister, I will read anything she's read just she because is she wrote funny. it. And as I say, there is a lot. She writes about depression in a way that, that I've never seen anywhere else and I think is searing in its accuracy, its truthfulness, its the, the emotions that it, that it engenders in you when you begin to realize just what she goes through. Uh, just every day in her life. Although one more, strangers seem uncomfortable when you question them about their childhood. But really, what else are you going to talk about when you're in line at the liquor store? Childhood trauma seems like the natural choice, since it's the reason why most of us are in line there to begin with. (laughs) She is just wonderfully engaging, and yet somebody who carries around a lot of pain. Our conversation, which both of us loved, with Jenny Lawson. Jenny Lawson, I am so excited to have you in the bookcase. I am a huge fan. I I wish I could translate my thoughts into writing the way that you do. But the very first line of Let's Pretend This Never Happened is, this book is totally true, except for the parts that aren't. So now in English classes, we talk endlessly about the concept of a reliable narrator, but I'm a big reader and a fan. So how reliable are you? (laughs) I would say, um, you know what, I think I'm probably more reliable than the people who say that they're telling the truth all the time, (laughs) simply because I'm so aware of the fact that I want it to be out there, that sometimes the conversations that I have that might be six rapid fire funny things actually happened over the course of three different days. And in between, there were arguments about like, who put the stuff in the washer and then forgot to take it out of the washer. And now we're having to wash it again. And this is actually the fifth time that I've had to wash the same load of clothes. And it's driving me crazy. But then I take that part out because I'm like, that part's not so funny. Although maybe it is funny now that I think about it. Maybe that should be in there. You write extraordinarily movingly about depression and things that you have gone through. Could you write that without the humor that you do? Are they both critical to you to write both very funny, which you do, and very movingly about the mental problems that you face? Um, To me, they are two sides of a coin that I think go very well together. Um, There's something about being able to 
laugh at a monster in a way that makes it smaller and more manageable. And and I think it also gives other people permission to look at something that can be really scary and intimidating and, you know, has the potential to make people say, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to. And instead, if you make a joke, uh, you're sort of inviting people in to say there is a more human side of this. There is still, there's joy in the sadness. There's sadness in the joy. Um, and I think for me, I I can't have one without the other, but I think it's helpful in that I have a lot of readers who are happy that they can share my books with their loved ones who don't deal with mental illness and wouldn't necessarily want to read a book about mental illness because they're like, oh, that's depressing. I don't want to read a depressing book about depression. I'm already having to deal with you. And instead, they read it and they're like, oh, this is actually really funny. I'm enjoying this. And then I can kind of squeeze in there. And also, this is what it's like to have depression or to have anxiety or, you know, um, impulsive thoughts or intrusive thoughts. And it, it gives them an opportunity to say, oh, I can listen to this. I've read your books multiple times, and it strikes me that in some ways you've probably become your own worst enemy. You write extensively about anxiety, aversion to public crowds, and yet you have become a mouthpiece in some ways for people like you. Do you ever think, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Often. Um, you know, I always I always kind of go back and I'm like, you know, if I could pick the theme of these books, they, they would be happier. They would be like, and then I was a successful otter rescuer. And yeah, I don't know, something, something where I would be like, what a great life that is. Um, instead of writing about, you know, how my brain wants to kill me sometimes and about how depression tells these terrible lies that you're, that you were constantly having to deal with. And so definitely there are some times when I think this is exhausting. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think everybody is probably a little bit exhausted in their brain. And so I just kind of remind myself that not only that that is what makes me who I am and that that's okay, I wouldn't choose it, but it does make me, it makes me more compassionate. It makes me more empathetic. It gives me a very different view, I think, than maybe the average person. And I think that's all important. And the other thing is I've learned boundaries. I mean, I think that has been something and I'm still learning it. But the ability to say no to things, to say, I don't want to be a spokesperson for this at this time. Or, you know, I have lots of opportunities of amazing, wonderful things where I just... Any normal person would say, oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. You want me to travel to where and do this? And and having to say, I can't do that. Like, that's just not, I don't have the emotional strength or the physical strength to do it. And being able to sort of change my perspective on it's okay to not do the things that everybody else would say would make a successful life as long as I can come up with my own goals of what I think a successful life is and try to accomplish those things. When did you realize you could put those two things together, the mental struggles that you've gone through and your wonderful sense of humor? When did you realize those could be compatible in terms of writing? 
and then come to the conclusion, maybe other people would want to read this. Where were you in life when that happened? I was in my, let's see, I was in my 30s. I was in a pretty dead-end job in human resources, teaching people how to be appropriate at a religious foundation. It was so the wrong place for me. Anybody who knows me goes, what? Um, I did it. I did it for years. But it was a, te- it was a terrible idea. And I wanted to write. And I, that was all I wanted to do. And so um, I, I started writing for the Houston Chronicle. And I kept getting in trouble in the Houston Chronicle. And I was still working, you know, full-time. And and I kept getting in trouble because I kept writing things that were like not really things that you write about in you know conservative Texas and and uh, and they were like ah you, you know we're gonna fire you but then they couldn't fire me because they weren't paying me um, and they were also like they were, yeah they were really nice they were like oh we really like you but like can you stop saying these inappropriate they were like okay um, and so I started a blog of my own on the side and it just you know there, I had like five people who would would read including like the like my cubicle mates where i would just like look over the corner and be like can somebody comment on my blog but over time i found that the things that i would think oh this is so if i write this people are going to run away and instead what happened was the people i was trying to impress did run away um but what happened is i suddenly attracted all of these people who i realized were my people who were the people that I wasn't having to try to pretend to be someone else, pretend to be this normal person who like had everything together and knew how to be a grown up. And I found my community. And by finding my community, I found myself. I always say I'm not a grown up, but I play one on TV. You talked earlier about boundaries, and I wanted to talk about your family and boundaries. Have your husband and child ever turned to you and said, no, 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 no. I know what you're thinking. Don't you dare. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My rule is everything that I write where I use a real person, they have to read it first and they have to okay it. And for the most part of almost always, not only are all the people in my life super supportive, but they are also the first people to say, you know, we have pictures of your dad's state champion armadillo racing ring. Do you need that? You know, we have pictures of the, that raccoon that we that lived in our house that I sold little jams for so that he wouldn't poop all over the house. And the, do you need pictures of that? And I'm like, oh my god, yes. Nobody believes any of these stories. Yes, I need these pictures. Um, or, or even better, my sister will be like, here's another thing. I don't know if you realize when we were growing up that this was weird, but this was weird. And I'm like, oh, I guess that was weird. And then I'll tell the story and people are like, there's no way that's true. I'm like, no, it is true. And we thought everybody else was like us. And apparently they're not. My child has had has had the only sort of uh, of real sort of pushback. And I think that is incredibly healthy and good. And every single time I'm like, okay, yeah, totally. I get it. Um, and they have changed a little as they're getting older, you know, they're 17 now. And so they're, they're a little more comfortable. And I suspect by the time they hit like 2021, 20, all the stuff that I have been saving, suddenly they'll be like, oh, that actually is really funny. Yes, that's fine. Share that. It has been interesting though, writing about real life, especially with Haley, because when they were, I don't know, they very young, they were like, I think 
I think I'm gay. And I was like, okay, awesome. Hand me the syrup. Like, I, I don't care. That's, I don't, I don't really believe in labels. That's great. I support you. And I, I, whatever. And then later they were like, I really wish he would have taken that more seriously. And I was like, I thought I was doing the right thing by saying, okay, fine. Like, it doesn't affect me. And so I'm like, okay. So like every person is different. Every person is different. And then I guess maybe a year ago, they were like, you know, I really, I think I'm non-binary. This feels, this feels right for me. And I've been trying out. I really think I was like, okay, awesome. And now it's, you know, a year later and they're like, this really does feel right to me. I was like, I had to learn about like how you are a lesbian and now you're not because you don't identify as a girl and you, and and I'm like, I'm trying to learn all this stuff again. And I look back at at the stuff that I've written and I, you know, when my last book came out, when I first wrote it, they weren't using they, them pronouns. And so it was written about, you know, my, my daughter and I was using she, her. And then when the paperback came out, I thought I'm going to write a, like a bonus chapter. And in the bonus chapter, I used the correct pronouns. And then the copy editor looked at it and they were like, this doesn't match. And so it's confusing. And I was so afraid that they were going to say, so we really need you to change it back. And and I was just like, oh, this is, no, I'm not, I'm not going to change it back. And oh, I don't want this to be a fight. And instead they were like, so is it okay if we just change the pronouns in the entire book and make it all occur? And I was like, the, I have the right publisher. Yes, absolutely. Let's do that. What I love about your sense of humor is that you go off in these wonderful rants that have me laughing out loud with total non sequiturs as you work through this relates to this, that relates to this. And I keep thinking, how did she remember where her imagination and brain was taking her to write it down? How does she recreate this wonderful series of non sequiturs that has me laughing so hard? It's very often it happens as I'm writing. The funniest ones, and it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, very rarely I make myself laugh. And if that happens, then I'm like, oh, okay, I've got it. I've got it. The other thing that I do on a very regular basis is I will be walking around and I will think something and I think, that's a weird thought. I wonder if there's anything there. And so I turn on my notes app and I turn on the uh, microphone. And as I'm walking, usually I'm out and I'm walking Dorothy Barker and I'm talking to my notes app. And as I'm talking to my notes app, I'm coming up with other things. But the thing is, is that my notes app doesn't understand. I don't know if it doesn't get my text and accent, or maybe it's because I've been drinking and so I'm slurring. I don't know, but it comes up with its own things. And so there's so many notes of me going, no, that's not it. No, no, go back. That's no, I was talking. I said, goblins not goobers what that wouldn't make any sense and then then i'm like actually guess goblins doesn't make any sense either in the, this context okay well played notes you win again so yeah so i have a couple of questions about this first of all when you get done with your pile of random stuff uh-huh. how do you then say okay i have a book here and it's gonna start here and it's gonna go there like i mean do you use yarn on a board like a homicide show do you lay the papers all over the floor like how does that process happen for you oh my gosh that's such a good question actually like if if uh if this wasn't an audio podcast, if you looked behind, you could see this big thing. This has a fold out and it has all of these post-it notes 
of all of the things that I'm currently working on going like, okay, how do I connect this to this? And how do I connect this to this? Um, And for me, and I know there's a lot of people who just say, sit down and write, that's your job. But for me, the muse has to hit. And so I have all these ideas and I'm walking around them with them in my head and I it'll suddenly come to me after maybe a month of thinking of it and I'll go, oh, oh, it needs to be in chronological order. Oh, it needs to be, oh, it needs to be an open letter. And oh, and if I do that, then I can add this and I can move this. And then, and typically I have, once it hits, I have about 20 minutes that my mind works and I have to get it all written down and I will scream at my family, no one talk to me. So audience, I'm about to commit a sin, which is that I'm going to pigeonhole the work a little bit, but just the way that I pigeonhole it in my own head, because you can't pigeonhole Jenny's work. But I think of Let's Pretend as the funniest book I've ever read. I think of Furiously Happy as a funny memoir about struggles with depression. And I think of Broken almost as an outreach book. I've shared my insides with you. Now I'm reaching out to you to tell the reader essentially that they're not alone. So how did those three books link together? Like, did you know they were going to come in that order? How did that happen for you? I did not know at all. The first book, I think, was in some ways a little bit easier because I thought, I'm probably only going to ever have one book. This is my one <laughs> chance. I want to put in it Whoops. all of the stories that I want one day my child to read. So I'm just going to put all the family stories. And I was like, oh, easy, memoir. And then it, then it did really well. And people were like, when's your next one? I can't wait. And I was like, oh, I have to do a next one. Um Okay. With the second one, I one of my friends asked me to do a speech. It, it's called an Ignite speech. It's kind of like a TED Talk, but not really, but I didn't really understand it. But everybody has this, there are these rules that you have to do. And I was just like, I don't like to follow rules. And can I not do that? And instead, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And so I was like, I'm just going to be furiously happy. And so I named it that. And then book three, I was like, I have to keep doing this. I didn't, no one told me. Uh, And then I had like a complete panic attack. Couldn't finish it, book three, because I just thought, I don't have anything in me. Like, I don't know what to write about. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly all of these ridiculous things started happening to me. And they were just the things that happen in life. And I thought, oh, you know what? I think that's what broken is. Like, I think broken is just about, these are the stories that come to me, like the good and the bad and the ugly. And then it it just suddenly came together. So now I'm waiting for whatever might be next to to hit me and go, hey, uh, you know what's nice? Money. <laughs> not not losing your house. Why? <laughs> Maybe you should have another book. Somebody wrote about your writing, and I wish I'd written it down. Somebody wrote, come for the jokes, stay for the inspirational tale of survival in the face of debilitating mental and physical illness, and also more jokes. <laughs> and I love that because I think you're writing, I'm in recovery. I've been in recovery for 14 years. And one of the things we say in the club is that my brain wants to get me alone so it can kill me. And so one of the things I love most about your writing is that hand that you offer, that that invitation to say, you're broken? Guess what? I'm broken too. In some ways, that's beautiful. And so that means an awful lot to me. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you so much for that. Very often, I get saved more than I do anything to help others. So the fact that I have so many people who come back to me and say, oh, that resonated with me, or I feel that way too, over and over, it saves me 
every single day. It is just a circle. And I honestly, I think I get more out of it than than I'm giving. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so wonderful if you can just open up and say, hey, here's a struggle that I have. And I'm going to be honest about it because then it gives everybody else permission to talk about their struggle and to say, oh, actually it is okay to talk about you know, and and maybe, I mean, it could be a million different things, but whatever that thing is, because there are stigmas and there are all of those things, anytime somebody shares any of that with me, it is, it gives me back permission again to share more. So I, so I just want to say thank you for that and for sharing. Let me ask you a deadly serious question. Yes. As I read you, I was kept wondering, would she be alive if it weren't for the ability to write and the ability to laugh? I would absolutely not, without a doubt. So many times I have been saved, not only by the people who reach out and say, you're not alone and you helped me because my brain, my depression, and and I have, you know, treatment resistant depression. I do all the, I do the medication. I do ketamine. I do transcranial magnetic stimulation. I do anybody who's like, depression doesn't exist. It's, you're just being lazy. I'm like, really? Because I'm hooked up to magnets that are pounding my brain that I'm spending thousands of dollars of my own money. I'm pretty sure I'm not doing this for fun. But I get so much back from people who say, don't listen to those lies that depression is telling you. You aren't making a difference. It's okay if the only thing that you have done today is breathe. I'm glad that you're here. And the other thing is because I had such severe anxiety when I was younger. This was before I had discovered therapy and Xanax and the things that kind of helped me through the harder times. The only way that I could communicate was by writing because I was so afraid of talking of communicating, that was my voice. If you're listening to this right now and you're struggling, hold on, keep working. Even if the only thing that you're doing is just taking a breath and holding on to the side of the couch and just living until tomorrow, that's an amazing achievement. And you know, I've come out of a depression and it feels like oh my God, I have so much energy. I went to the grocery store and I did laundry and I did, and it's so easy to do. But had you asked depressed me to do it, that would have taken weeks to do. But you can you can come out of it. And it's okay to, to ask for help. It's okay because when you're in a depression is the worst time to try to get help because your brain is telling you, you don't really need help. It's the first thing that goes through your head, I think, when you start to spiral is, well, I'm not going to call anybody. This is on me. Right. Um, exactly. Which is, again, which is right away, you're like, oh, that's false. Yes. I'll tell you what, if writing has saved your life, then I'm thankful that you write for a whole nother reason because your writing has meant an awful lot to me. I've been, this has been amazing to talk to you. Um, it's been a real thrill for me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my gosh. No, thank you. A lot of people read my books because they love to laugh about all the terrible things you shouldn't maybe laugh at. And that's an incredible combination that you have in the books. As you say, laughter is the best way to cover pain. And you and you, you, you say, I, 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 I've come out of it so far. May you continue to come out of it. May you continue to prosper. May you continue to help folks because you do. And that's really important. Jenny Lawson, thank you. Thank you. 
Jenny Lawson, rapid fire questions. Most influential book in your life? Um, probably Twice 22, which was uh, Ray Bradbury's book that I stole from my grandmother when I was a kid and absolutely devoured it. Why was that so influential? There were a whole, she had so many books that I stole from her, like every Stephen King book, every, I mean, third grade, I did a, a book report on Pet Cemetery that I had stole from her and got in trouble with. Um, so I constantly would, would uh, take them. But Twice 22 was the first time that I discovered short stories and the first time that I discovered Ray Bradbury, like the tone in which he writes his prose scratches my brain in exactly the right way. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh, reading, 100%. I constantly read. I at least two or three books a week. Revered book that you read that maybe you wish you hadn't? Oh, gosh. I'm embarrassed to say there's probably a lot of them. I think the one that that probably bothers me the most because people love it so much and, oh, my God, I just cannot with it uh, is Love in the Time of Cholera. Every time I read it, I'm like, this is so depressing. I don't want to read this. Why do people like this book? Uh, there's so many books like that where I'll make myself read it. I'll be like, oh, okay, Moby Dick. Everybody loves Moby Dick. And I'm like, there's so much penis stuff here. Oh, my God. How is this a classic? But yeah, yeah, I feel, I feel a little bad that there's a lot of classics that I read and I go, really? Finish this sentence. If I wasn't a writer, I would be dead. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And in five words, this is a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but I think it's illustrative. In five words, can you describe what the rest of your life you'd like the rest of your life to be? Oh, that's a good question. Let's see. Uh, it kind of feels like cheating, but I would say I want to be happy um, because I won't be happy unless other people are happy. Like, I'm not going to be happy if if my family's struggling or if my friends are struggling or if there's, you know, injustice in the world. And so if I'm happy, that means that things are, are going well. The incomparable, the amazing Jenny Lawson, uh, who I never get tired of quoting. So I'll give you one more. <laughs> you can fly. But only metaphorically. You can't actually fly. I don't care how much PCP you've had. Get off the roof, idiot. <laughs> Another great motive. I would read those motivational posters. I would buy those motivational posters. I would put them up everywhere. I think it's been established that I love writers who can write in multiple voices. I think it's an amazing way to show off their talent. This writer speaks with one voice, but it is a very difficult perspective from which to write. One, because her brain is moving so fast. And two, because of her struggles with mental health. As I think people have gotten the sense from our conversation that she feels laughter is indeed the best way to cover pain. And that's how she uses it. And so interesting. It's funny when you read her books, you almost as a reader, you worry about her because you think to yourself, oh, my God, you've written these amazing books. And now, as I asked her about, you've become this spokeswoman for people who have anxiety and who are agoraphobic and don't necessarily like reaching out or being extroverted. And now, as a result, you have to be a leader, a mouthpiece for this movement. And I, I, I kept thinking, oh, my God, she's in this catch-22. But when she says, my work saved me, my readers saved me, they save me every day. 
by providing me a community so that I don't feel alone. She has taken her struggles and made them meaningful in a way that I think is incredibly yep. admirable. Yep. And it's made me an even bigger fan of hers. And one of the interesting parts of Jenny Lawson, one of the, uh, I thought something of a contradiction, she's opened a bookstore. Uh, she owns a bookstore in San Antonio, Texas. It is nowhere books. And so, since we like to include an independent bookstore in each podcast, it's natural to go to Nowhere Books, where Elizabeth Jordan manages the store. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Elizabeth from Nowhere Books. It's not often, by the way, that we interview an author that dictates the bookstore. But in this case, uh, we talked to Jenny Lawson earlier. Lovely, lovely fun. And she has her own bookshop, the Nowhere Bookshop in San Antonio. So, Elizabeth, you guys have sort of an interesting opening history. <laughs> Tell us about your opening and how you survived. To say the very least, yes. We were all set to go for an April 2020 open. The week of March 8th, I submitted all of the opening inventory orders to the publishers, like all the books that we were going to have on the shelf when we opened. And by that March 13th, that Friday, I was like, no, please don't send us those books. Like, what are we going to do with them? Like, the whole world is ending. We were already very fortunate in that we had a large following online and a lot of customers because of Jenny herself. Her fans are fantastic, very enthusiastic. We're enthusiastic about the store from the moment we launched the website where we were selling t-shirts and signed books. And so we figured we could still make it work. <laughs> we had a subscription club that we had launched in December of 2019 called the Fantastic Strangelings Book Club. Um, which anytime you type it will autocorrect to fantastic stranglings, which, you know, there's some of that as well. And so because we had that and because we also had people supporting us through bookshop.org, we were able to be really conservative and really cautious about when we chose to open. But we did finally open fully to the public in July of 2021. Actually, yesterday was our one year birthday and it's been fantastic ever since. Let me ask you about the Fantastic Strangelings. So how, or the Fantastic Stranglings, you know, whatever happens at the meetings, that's your business. But talk to me about how those books are selected and what, what are the last 
I don't know, three titles, Ben. Jenny is the one who selects all of those titles. The club is Jenny picks a book that she loves every month and we ship it right to your door. So she's the one who's doing the heavy lifting on all the reading. She's reading probably 50 to 60 books a month before settling on the one that she's chosen. This month, a book called Florida Woman by Deb Rogers. And ironically, the month before was a book called Hurricane Girl by Marcy Dermansky. They tend to be fiction, although we have done some nonfiction in the past. And, you know, our hope is that we're elevating some voices that may otherwise kind of fly under the radar. And then we meet once a month. The authors will do a Q&A with Jenny via Zoom and all the people in the club will come and listen to that. So that's been a lot of fun. It's a great community. There are authors that you'd like to recognize that aren't otherwise. How are you sort of, do you know how Jenny sort of keeps her eye out for those diamonds in the rough? I try to help her as much as I can, but you know, we're lucky I'm sitting in my office. You can see all of the advanced copies of books that we can get, that we get shipped. So I'm trying to pull out things that like, Hey, you know, this is a debut or this person is hopefully going to break out um, and put those on the top of her pile and try and steer her away from the, Oh, that's 150,000 print run. Like they already kind of expect big things from that. As a bookseller, what makes you the most excited? You know, honestly, it's the conversations with the customers who come in after I sold them a book and go, oh my God, I read that and I loved it. What's next? And it's like, that's the thing that keeps me coming in every day. When people come in and say, Elizabeth, what's the book of the summer? What are you putting in their hands? This summer? Oh my gosh. I've been reading a lot of like thrillers. <laughs> um, as people are trying to be like escapist, but I've been also reading a lot of backlist short story collections. And so I'm like foisting those on people a lot of the times, like Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, um, They're There by Tommy Orange. I, I love connected short story collections. And then some like more hidden gems like Visitation of Spirits by Randall Keenan that they've just reissued. And actually, we just interviewed a debut author who wrote a book of interconnected short stories called Stories from the Tenants Downstairs that comes out in the fall. I'm super excited about that one. What was it that attracted you to book selling? It is not a profession that's going to make you rich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my Bentley's out back. I haven't seen it. Um, no, it. you know, I kind of stumbled into book selling. It wasn't a plan. I had finished college at a liberal arts university in Texas called Southwestern and was going to do grad school for Asian cultures and languages at UT um, in Austin. And I was like, well, I don't want to go right away. I'm going to take like a year and I'm going to work. And I'd only ever worked food service or for the government. <laughs> so I, I was like, well, I love books. I love reading. Like I just, I fell in love with book selling, but I also fell in love with the industry and with the business side of it, which was something that I never thought about like booksellers are incredibly savvy business people yeah. because you have to be <laughs> i mean in order to like have a successful bookstore you have to be a very savvy business person so you know you can get into it because you love the books and we all do very much love the books but then it's you know educating yourself on how to make it work i, I will say also it's a very congenial industry we all share ideas we all share like you know nightmares and dreams <laughs> um and are very fantastic colleagues so I'm always just blown away when you talk to somebody who's been in books only for 20 years and they're like, just the sharpest business mind you'd ever meet. I like asking uh, if they're willing to give me an answer because sometimes they think it's like picking their favorite children. But what's your favorite book of all time? My favorite book of all time is The Hakawati by Rebbe Alamedin, who I probably butchered the name of 
his last name, but he's fantastic. It's the book that like I hand people and I say, read the first paragraph and I promise you're going to be sucked in. It's got um, mysticism and fantastic elements, but also very rooted in reality. And it's just a gorgeous story with a gorgeous cover. Um, which doesn't hurt. Well, we wish you great success. Elizabeth Jordan of the Nowhere Bookshop. Happy anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It was lovely talking to y'all. May you prosper if you got through COVID. You can probably get through normal times. (laughs) No more pandemic. (laughs) You'll find the Nowhere Bookshop on Broadway in San Antonio. Thank you. Elizabeth Jordan of Nowhere Books. I love, I love the idea that Jenny started a book club that kept that club going during the pandemic. And I love that folks signed up and... You know, it's interesting. Bookstores really have some savvy business ideas to keep themselves going. I'm always fascinated by the ways they think outside of the box to keep themselves vital to the community. And that bookstore, of course, has a good solid base in that they carry Jenny Lawson's books. And you really will get a kick out of them and be, I think, very struck by what a remarkable human being Jenny Lawson is if you read one of her books or, or all of them. We would mention one more time. We mentioned it last week. We would mention it again this week. We would love to have you subscribe. We would love to have you following our bookcase. It is easy to do when you sign on and you listen. Just click that button and subscribe to the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And the people who make it possible. Oh, well, they're coming up and you should hear their names. And then afterwards, Jenny Lawson will sign us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with Sure Can Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Eru Epinobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Um, I would say enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself.